The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fullick. Hi, and welcome to another show. This is Preparing for the Unexpected, and I'm your host, Alex Fullick. Today, we're going to talk about fire services and uh, all the aspects that relate to fire hazardous materials, you know, how you store your barbecues, you know, evacuations. We're going to talk about a lot of different things, and we'll see where it takes us as we go along. I have a wonderful guest today. Actually, he's local for where I live in the city of Guelph, Ontario, Canada. He is the Chief Fire Prevention uh, Officer, I hope I got the title right, uh, Mr. Tony Sabatini. Tony, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Alex, for having me. Uh, did I get the title right? I think you did, yes, absolutely. I am the Chief Fire Prevention Officer for the City of Guelph Fire Department. Oh, wonderful. I thought uh, you know there were, there were multiple people, but uh, I've got the top guy here. This is great. Well, one, I guess you have one of the top guys from one of the divisions, I guess. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're not on the show. We'll say we got the top guy. Oh, well, thank you for that. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> so let's get started. Uh, you know, exactly what, can you define for our listeners, you know, because they're around the globe. We, we've got everybody listening in. What is fire services? What what's the role of fire services? You know, and you know, when when people say fire services, what should they really you know understand? It's not just a fire truck going down the street. You know, right. And I think you've you've brought upon a good point. I think the uh, average person, when they hear the term fire services, all they all they really recognize is a large truck, whether it be red or yellow, screaming down with sirens, and you have uh, men and women jumping off, and they're pulling out a hose and just putting a fire out with flames coming out of a window. And that's generally uh, what people would associate with fire services. But in actual fact, fire services encompasses a heck of a lot more. Uh, Firstly, yes, there is fire suppression, whereby you have firefighters that actually put fires out, but they also effectuate uh, rescues in buildings in the event that there is a fire or in the event that there may be a spill of a type of a hazardous liquid or it could be smoke filled with a small fire, they effectuate the rescue. Fire services also involve firefighters going to uh, incidents such as car accidents or explosions, and they assist with uh, crowd uh, movement away from a danger zone, and they also effectuate a rescue. They incorporate also uh, high-level first aid, 
called first responder, first aid, whereby they assist people with medical emergencies. They're usually first on along with paramedics that are there, to which many fire services have people that are trained as paramedics as well. So they do that as well. And uh, the fire services also breaks down not only to the incident or the reactionary measures when an actual emergency occurs, but also the preventative side to which you would have a fire prevention bureau. And this is pretty well standard with all types of fire departments, pretty well worldwide and certainly in first world countries mostly. And those uh, fire prevention divisions or fire prevention bureaus that deal with that component of the fire service uh, are generally dealing with code enforcement to make sure that the minimum levels of life and fire safety are met in buildings for the occupants. They also conduct public fire safety education in the form of presentations or in the form of teaching. And they also conduct, in many cases, uh, fire investigations to determine the origin cause of fires to uh, verify that once they're able to obtain that origin and cause, that it doesn't happen again so that codes and standards eventually can be changed once they have all that data. As well, there's the training aspect, which trains firefighters and also trains people in the fire prevention divisions or bureaus in order for these individuals to be at the top of their profession to make sure that they are actually dealing with everything that they are responsible for at the highest level. Wow. That's so much more than a red truck going down the street. Absolutely. With sirens blaring. You touched on quite a few different things there. So um, let's let's start going through some of uh, what you brought up and flesh out some more uh, information for people. You met the the training one. I really like the because the training isn't just uh, from my perspective, isn't just for the firefighters themselves. It's for you know, people that work in offices or maybe, to me, I could be wrong, you know, people that live in homes and, you know, uh, facilities, you know, how to evacuate people. You know, does it incorporate those kind of things, you know, uh, and, and, and what people should do? Because when something occurs, you know, you guys aren't there right away. Absolutely right. And you've touched upon a very important component about fire safety. And and one of the tasks that we have is not only educating people on how to prepare for a fire emergency, an unanticipated fire emergency, but also the preventative aspect. So looking at preparation, for example, if you were to look at outside of the home at, at, at this particular moment, if we were to look at an industry or we were to look at a large-scale office building or even a small office building, uh, in many cases here in the province of Ontario, and I think you'll find this even throughout the United States and, and in places in Europe and other, and other areas around the world, that there are requirements for fire safety planning. And fire safety planning encompasses not only how people should evacuate, because once you indicate to someone, and generally the impression in people's minds is a fire safety plan is just a document that's plastered on a wall, indicating that the alarm bells ring, for example, if there's a fire alarm system that they're to exit uh, the, the closest door to get out of a building. A fire safety plan actually entails what specific staff members who are responsible for the people in the building are to do in the event that there is a fire, which is help directing them out. So we try to teach that component as well. What we would also do is talk about the preventative maintenance in terms of whether there be a fire alarm system or if we're talking about a home, a smoke alarm. There are preventative measures that are in accordance to local 
provincial, even state regulations that must be maintained so that they're always in working order because those are the alerting devices or the suppression devices that in the event that there is a fire, people know what to do in terms of not only escaping but actually how to deal with a particular situation, especially if there are others in there. So, yes, there is that preparatory component. Uh, The difficulty, though, that is happening out there because people don't truly understand what it is that they are to do. And it's of no fault of their own. They're just uninitiated. And this is one of the tasks that most fire departments are trying to do, is that we're trying to train them that there are specific responsibilities to be taken into account so that they can escape uh, a fire incident or a tragic fire incident that may occur so that they actually leave unscathed or unharmed. Having said that, there are also the preventative measures to actually have uh, you know, components in place legally and otherwise so that these particular uh, issues do not occur, so that they are not confronted with an actual fire occurrence and they don't have to worry about injuries due to fires because everything they have in place is in proper functioning order. So does that include things like uh, testing, you know, uh, that, that everything works, that it runs to what they expect? Because coming from my background with business continuity and disaster recovery planning, a lot mm-hmm. of times we are sitting there making these plans and saying, this is what right. you'll do. But right. is is it better for us to actually reach out to fire services to get their advice on what we should have in these plans? Absolutely. Uh, we would encourage we would encourage anyone out there who wants that type of assistance to reach out to any of their local fire departments for their assistance, because that is a component of what we do. As a matter of fact, just in the province of Ontario, speaking here, we have a legislative obligation to assist people with public fire safety education and other fire prevention measures. This is one of those other fire prevention measures, to assist them in preparing a plan that is to be put into practice. And it's different when you have a plan on paper, as you well know in your profession, but to actually have Mm -hmm. it in effect where you actually practice it, which is really important so that when it's in practice, then you know exactly what to do given a particular circumstance if it were to occur. So you're absolutely correct in that. And that would involve, as you've stated earlier, about testing, say, an alarm system, which is not only a requirement, not only here in the province of Ontario, but elsewhere. It is just testing a smoke alarm, verifying a sprinkler system, for example, if one is installed, is in working order, verifying that you have, uh, you know, standpipe hoses, where you see the hoses in the wall, that they are actually maintained. There are legislative requirements to maintain those. So in the event that they're needed to be used, that they will function in, in uh, as intended based on how they are to operate. So yes, these are the components that if people were to reach out, we can assist them on, and we must, at least here in the province of Ontario, must assist them on in terms of making sure that they are prepared. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Because I, I, like I said, I know I've, I've sat in a room and people have said, well, this is what we'll do. You know, and right. uh, I, I know that you know, some of it we probably got right, but at uh, we also need to make sure that, but are we meeting other people's expectations? You know, with fire services, are we doing what they expect? Which leads right. me to the question, when uh, you know, firefighters and everyone involved gets on the scene, what it is, what is it you expect from uh, us? Because you, you may get there and there's people all over the place, you know, and you may see a dozen people with, you know, neon colored vests or something, you know, they were the facility fire wardens, you know, but... 
I don't think you would appreciate 12 different people rush, rushing up to you and telling you tons and tons of stuff. You know, what, what kind of, what, what do you expect when you get on the scene? You know, how, how, well, do you, how, how should places communicate? Right. That's an excellent point that you've brought up, Alex. Uh, in, or, in terms of communicating to an on-scene incident commander, which would either be a platoon chief or a captain that comes on scene first, what, what usually happens? Uh, I would like for your listeners to, to know that when a fire service member or a truck of firefighters actually approaches the scene, they're is a myriad of concerns in the mind. There's the pre-planning stage of how to address a situation, especially if there's a fire or in the event that there may be a fire. And yes, there are individuals exiting the building. Here's the key. If individuals are exiting the building and they're exiting quickly, it seems that they're going in accordance not only to their own uh, personal safety, but probably according to the plan that's been established. Now, you'll see people with vests, as you've indicated. It is always important that only one person be appointed to come to the incident commander to indicate to that individual perhaps if someone is still in the building or to indicate that everyone has been evacuated from the building, perhaps the location of a fire incident, or if in fact there were a flammable liquid that were spilled somewhere and it's causing, it's, it's actually wreaking havoc among individuals if they were to breathe it in. So yes, you're absolutely right. When you have all these people with vests, yes, they have delegated responsibilities, but it's always a, a good uh, uh, rule of thumb to only have one individual approach because when you have several, it can get so confusing that in, in the actual situation that is occurring, because it's very confusing, that the incident commander may have to neglect what's being said and just deal with the issues at hand and, just, and, and, and address it as best as it can. But having just the one individual approach, an actual supervisory staff member who has that responsibility to indicate that information to the incident commander, which would be a platoon chief or a captain, that would be of great assistance to us because then we can plan differently based on that information that is being provided because that information is crucial to the incident commander and how he's going to strategically plan how he's either going to fight a fire, evacuate a building, effectuate a rescue, and, and a myriad of other things. Because if you get a bunch of people saying the same thing, there's somebody still in there, you, or or not, because maybe one of those 12 people with the vest doesn't know there's somebody in there, you may send your people in you know, unnecessarily to areas that you know don't need the attention, right? Absolutely you know, can cause correct. confusion. Yeah. Yes. Well, who, in your estimation, who do you think is the best person to be that single contact? Like the facility manager, the... The, you know, what qualifications should that person be, you know, so that well, organizations uh, out there identify the right person? Right. Uh, it, it, in, if we're just strictly speaking as who would be the individual, be the person who's best trained in dealing with that, uh, that area of uh, a potential incident. And it could be a health and safety committee member that may have been appointed that. Here in Ontario, when we're speaking specifically with fire safety and someone being appointed, they use the terminology supervisory staff. Supervisory staff is a defined term in the Ontario Fire Code. It's also in the National Fire Code of Canada. And that, that, that it just indicates a person who has the delegated responsibility for fire safety. That is a responsibility that comes from a company owner or a, a homeowner or a building owner. That's the individual who assigns that specific responsibility. It is in the best interests that that person be as well-trained in that area of a concern 
to, to deal with all those matters. And that would be the individual that would come to an incident commander to indicate what problems may be there, where the people have mustered, for example, at a location away from the building, and other information that may be needed or gleaned from the actual incident commander from that individual. So who's the best person? It's the person who's best trained would be what we would like to see. Uh, the Ontario Fire Code, along with the National Fire Code, speaks to just a specific person who's responsible. And the intention is the person who is the most trained for it, such as a facility supervisor, if that individual has taken it upon him or herself to be that individual. Well, that's good to know because I, I've, I remember uh, an instance a couple of years back, we had a fire drill and a fire department came on board and we had a designated person to speak with the fire service. Uh, I, I would assume it was the fire chief who was there. And all right. of a sudden, the you know the C level you know chief information officer walked up and said, "I'm in charge," and yet they weren't the one who had all the training. So right. it was kind of interesting that you know your your description you know it's the best trained person, not not just by title. Correct, correct. It's the best trained person and and a person who has taken on that that responsibility to be in that role as well. We would love to see the person who's best trained. And and that certainly goes back to the education component, the training component, certainly the work that you do, any re outreach to us as a public service for us to assist. We have to get the best individuals that are trained. Yes, you're absolutely correct. It's the best trained person. It doesn't necessarily mean a position uh, within a company. And it could very well be that person in that position if they are the right. ones that are trained. Right. Yeah. Just to clarify that, you know, it doesn't mean the CIO isn't trained. Right. But right. Um, exactly. Mean, exactly. Just because they have that title doesn't mean they are automatically, you know, know everything, so to speak, and True. can run the situation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Great. And on yeah. that note, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Mr. Tony Sabatini, the Chief Fire Prevention Officer here in the City of Guelph. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. 
Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back for, to Preparing for the Unexpected. Uh, we're talking with Mr. Tony Sabatini, the Chief Fire Prevention Officer here in the city of Guelph, where I live. So I really appreciate having uh, local talent on the uh, show today. Um, we're learning and talking about fire services and fire prevention. And Tony, I'd like to talk about uh, what we should do around our homes, you know, and, and our offices. I know with offices, we talked about evacuation plans, but what about our homes? You know, what, what do we need to do? You know, we have single, we have so many different kinds of homes now. We have high rises and three-story walk-ups and stacked condo buildings and, you know, semi-detached and all these different homes. And I, I, you know, I don't think one plan fits everything. You know, what, what do you suggest that we all should do around the home, you know, to, if, if you know, unfortunately, we have a fire or a situation, I mean, what do we need to do at home? Right. Um, I think uh, this is highly important because statistically speaking, anywhere from 70 to 80% of all fires do occur in the home, regardless of where that home is. It can be in an apartment. It can be in a single detached home. It can be in a condo. It could be in another type of building where a residence has been formed. So regardless of what you call home, regardless if it's a high-rise, regardless if it's a house, regardless if it's a a condo, the Ontario Fire Code, for example, which sets a minimum standard, and the National Fire Code also, which is a model code, which sets a minimum standard for safety, speaks to people in the home as well. One of the key components of failure that we find in almost every fire whereby it happens in a home and there is either injury or death, is non-working smoke alarms. The law is replete with indicating uh, that smoke alarms must be installed in a home, and in most cases on every level. So let's assume you had someone in Florida that doesn't have a basement, they just have a small bungalow, for example. At least one smoke alarm on that level that is working will allow that person an opportunity to escape from a fire that occurs relatively unscathed. Now, regardless of what you call home, the smoke alarms are of vital importance. But here's the thing. Just having an installed smoke alarm doesn't necessarily mean 
that it will assist an individual unless it's fully functioning. And it almost sounds elementary when we try to explain this, uh, whenever we try to put it out there in certain outreach programs that most fire services do, whether it be through media, whether it be through, uh, uh, you know, uh, other, other forms of, whether it be just in general communication, working smoke alarms, whether they be battery operated or not, are the key to assisting people in escaping a fire. Most of the fires, statistically speaking, are happening at night. So having working smoke alarms is key. I know I'm belaboring this point, but it is so important to have on every level of the home. So if you have a two-story home, have at least two. If you have a three-story home, have at least three. If you have just a one-story or just a small apartment, have one, regardless of where it is. Now, with that, just having a working smoke alarm isn't enough. You must have an escape plan. And here it is. Uh, A lot of children actually learn this in school. They will develop an escape plan. And it's basically a schematic diagram that they actually draw in school, which is is a blueprint of their home. And what they do is they know they have to have it, you know, they, they actually put together ways to get out. Generally, we say at least two ways out. Okay, so at least having a one way out and a secondary way out that for people to escape. So that plan, although it's in place, and I think we discussed it even in the earlier segment, yeah, it's great to have a plan in written form. But if it's not practiced, how do you know it's going to be effective? So smoke alarms that work on every level of the home, regardless of how many levels you have, having an escape plan that's practiced while you test your smoke alarm, we we would strongly recommend you test the smoke alarms every month to verify it's working. It's very simple to do. You just press the test button that's on the smoke alarms, which virtually all smoke alarms have. And now there is the carbon monoxide alarms that we're trying to get people, which is already legislated in Ontario and in other provinces and in the U.S., to have, uh, have carbon monoxide alarms in the home as well. Because the way homes are being built today, they're actually pretty uh, efficient in terms of allowing, you know, air to escape or come in, and they're they're very airtight for that efficiency, for heat, for coolness, that you want to have a working carbon monoxide alarm as well. So here it is, working smoke alarms, and you must have an escape plan both in combination. If you can practice it, I can almost guarantee that you will have yourselves very safe condition, as safe as can be, given uh, an anticipated fire event. So what happens if you're, uh, I'll use actually my situation right here. Sure. I live in a stacked condo um, and I've got the right. top top one and a half floors and there's two floors, uh, one and a half floors below me. So I've got three balconies, but only one entrance. And now if the fire is down there, what do I do? How do I get out? You know, well, do, what suggestions do you have for me? Because I've actually right. been thinking about this in the last couple of weeks, knowing sure, in anticipation of the show. Right. You've posited a great, great question. Now, I, I, I know of the type of building in which you live. And yes, there's only one way out. And that was permitted by building code, which is a minimum standard. So what do you do in a case like that? You've indicated that you have a balcony. This is critically important. And I'm glad you brought this up, Alex. So here it is. In the event that a fire were to occur, and your one way out, which is the door to get out, is completely blocked with smoke or heat, and there's just no possible way that you can escape that way, regardless of the fact that you have your working smoke alarms and you have an escape plan. What would be the secondary way out? There isn't one, but there is something you can do. You have the balcony. 
Now, historically, balconies, especially in high-rise buildings, historically, balconies were actually inputted as a place for people to have refuge in the event they couldn't escape. What happens in that respect is if you have yourself in the balcony where you're outside where you can get fresh air, regardless of the weather conditions, at least you have fresh air and you're away from that toxic smoke, and you're able to put the call in for help, which in many cases people have cellular telephones or data phones, put the call in for help by dialing 911, indicating where your location is. That will be our first point of entry to help with the rescue of that individual who is trapped on that balcony. So you have a balcony, that's the, where you position yourself. Assuming that you live in a place that doesn't have a balcony, we would suggest going to the safest, furthest room from where the fire incident is, shutting the doors because that'll maintain the heat and toxic smoke from coming in, going to a window, opening it up for fresh air, and again, putting in that call for help by calling 911, indicating your location, and that will be the first point of contact for firefighters to come and help rescue you. Thank you. Now I have a home plan. <laughs> oh, that's great to hear. Because <laughs> I was wondering about that. You know, I, I wasn't sure, you know, if, if I, do I stand out there? You know, what do I do? I only have the one entrance. Because there is right. a building here on the ba- balcony. They've got a, it looks like a collapsible ladder to get down. Right. Well, are, yeah. Are those, actually, yeah. You know, do you recommend those you know, as Absolutely. a backup? Absolutely. Those are called escape oh. ladders, and, and we do recommend those for folks that either live in something that's more than just the main level, or if you have a second or third level, if we just took it an individual dwelling, for example, that's two and a half stories high. If you have a bedroom upstairs, for example, regardless of what you use it upstairs for, having one of these escape ladders, which should be listed, and when I use the term listed, that they are either been tested by a nonprofit agency, such as the Underwriter Laboratories of Canada or CSA, Canadian Standards of Association here in Canada, UL in the, U, in the U.S., and Werner Kersey in the U.S., if you have one of those ladders, which is an escape ladder, they're collapsible, and you can't get out any other way, and that fire is screaming from downstairs coming up and you can't escape, those ladders actually hook onto a window sill, and you can actually climb down this ladder and be safe right at ground level. So yes, if at all possible, if budgets permit for folks, if they can have one of these collapsible fire escape ladders and they can place them, now they're not going to do much good if you leave them on downstairs in a bathroom somewhere, but if you place them upstairs (laughs) in an area where you know you need to use them, then yes, that would be a uh, a good way to escape. Of course, it would be your last means. It wouldn't be your first choice. If you can get out the front door, that's the safest way. But if it becomes blocked with smoke and heat and you cannot escape that way, the escape ladder is a great alternative. I think I'll look into one of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned the, the fire uh, extinguishers. Uh, sorry, extinguishers. I'll get to that one in a moment. Yeah, the fire alarms. Uh, testing them. Mm-hmm. How often should we do that? You know, I've heard different thoughts on when that should occur. Right. And uh, I'm assuming you're speaking about fire alarms in buildings, or are you talking about the smoke alarms in the homes? Uh, Actually, it could be both. Why not not address both? Let's do the homes first. Let's, let's yeah, absolutely. So let's start with the home ones. Home ones, you're talking about your smoke alarms and your carbon monoxide alarms. Right. So it is recommended. Now, this is a recommendation that you test them once a month just to verify that they're working. There's an actual test button that's on a smoke alarm. All you do is press the test button to verify that it works. Now, what that test button does on a smoke alarm is only tests the sound. Are you sure that it will work for smoke? 
Well, although we don't try to present this to children or adolescents, if by chance you have a guardian or an adult supervising, the way you can test it with smoke is either do what's called a cotton burn strength test. And that's pretty well of a weird phrase. But what it is, if you get a cotton string, you just light it with a lighter, blow it out quickly, and bring that cotton string that has the smoke that's emanating upwards towards the chamber to verify that it will sound the alarm. You will have 100% guarantee that that smoke will have activated that smoke alarm. That's one way to verify that that smoke alarm actually functions for you. Another way, you can purchase online the simulated smoke sprays that can also do the trick as well. They're a little bit more costly, of course, than a cotton burn string, but much more uh, in the safe region than, than actually lighting a fire or a small flame to have the smoke actually activate. So that's the best way to test. If you don't have that or you, you feel uncomfortable, by testing it with the test button, that test feature will assure you that even in a smoke condition, it will operate. So that's your smoke alarm. Carbon monoxide, the only way you can test carbon monoxide alarms is by pressing the test button. If you press it, it will, it will sound. If it sounds, you know it's functioning. So once a month. Now with fire alarm systems. You will notice that there are some buildings that have fire alarm systems. Others don't. That's because by design, some are required to have them. Some are not. But the ones that do, by law, they must be fully tested once a year by a certified fire alarm technician. That is a requirement by law, at least in this province. I know that it's also a requirement by law in many other areas throughout North America, and I have a feeling in some areas in Europe as well. But regardless, if they don't have such a thing, at least once a year to do a full test of a fire alarm system, it is also recommended at least every month or every three months to test a fire alarm system to verify that it is functioning. So we know that the fire alarm system is working. Well, we also try to advise individuals, if you're testing your fire alarm system with a fire alarm tech, for example, why not try to parlay that into your fire safety plan to see how your escape happens with everyone in the building, if, if it's permissible, of course, with, with, with the company. So, yes, once a year for a fire alarm system for a full-fledged test, we also recommend that on a monthly or every three months, but when you're talking about the home, every month on the smoke alarm. So any, any recommendations on changing batteries, you know, either yeah. every spring or just yes. uh, if yeah. people so forget, I mean, you know? You're absolutely right. And the National Fire Protection Association, which is a, a, a standard-setting body that provides advisement throughout the entirety of North America, uh, strongly recommends that you change batteries and smoke alarms if you have a battery-operated smoke alarm once yearly. Here in the province of Ontario, we strongly recommend doing it twice yearly, every six months. And, in, and we try to do it at a time where people can recall when to do it. So whenever uh, fall comes up, which within, unfortunately, within about a month or so, uh, in October, when we have to change our clocks back, uh, that's when we recommend to change the batteries. You can battery-operate smoke alarms. And in the spring, when we change the, 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 the clocks back to forward, we recommend also the, the exchange of the batteries in to verify that those batteries are in, uh, in, in optimal condition to, to activate your smoke alarms. Well, I actually change mine every fall, and uh, I always know when my uh, my fire alarm works because uh, every time I make raisin toast, my alarm goes off. So <laughs> I know it works here. <laughs> oh, that's great! Yeah, you know, I, you Do bring you, up a point there oh, about uh, some of these smoke alarms. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to disrupt you there, but uh, you talk about smoke alarms, and sometimes they activate when people are are, are toasting bread. 
and yeah. <laughs> it, it gets does every it, time. It, you know, not regular bread, it, just raisin toast. <laughs> right, well, raisin toast, yes, and I love raisin toast, by the way. So, <laughs> having said that, though, uh, what happens is, uh, you know, people become so accustomed to that sound. Some people actually take the batteries out because they're just so annoyed by it. Not only are they accustomed, they're annoyed by it. If they're accustomed to it, they just won't respond. If they're annoyed by it, they may try to disengage the mechanism. So we've had concerns with people doing that. So what would, that, that, that poses a significant challenge because what happens in the middle of life if that person doesn't put back the smoke alarm battery or if they've disengaged the alarm and it's not working and there's an actual fire? What happens in that respect? So we may have a person trapped there or worse, someone injured or dying. So what we try to tell people is if you have the type of smoke alarm that just activates on practically anything, even after taking a shower, well, one of the options would be to replace that smoke alarm with another type. There are two types. There's the ionization smoke alarm, which usually happens, which usually activates on fast, uh, quick fires with very little smoke and they activate right away. And then there's the photoelectric alarm, which usually activates on more smoldering type fires, which means you won't have all those nuisance alarms for when you're toasting your raisin bread, for example. So, if that's the case, and you've become so accustomed to hearing the sound and you're not you know, responding to it in a way that would be safe if you had to escape, or if you find yourself that individual just trying to take out that battery, which you shouldn't be doing, I would strongly recommend that you change that type of smoke alarm to one that's a photoelectric. Because the law does not distinguish between which one you should have. At least by having a photoelectric, if it were to activate, at least it won't be one that activates on a constant basis, which disallows you to move or react to it. You know that if it activates, there has to be a reaction to it. So if that's the case, if you have ionization smoke alarms and they're just such a darn nuisance, then I would strongly recommend going to the photoelectric smoke alarms and having them installed instead. Well, you know, even though it's a nuisance, at least it lets me know that it's working at home and I'd be safe. So oh, you know, I can put up hear. with that aggravation. <laughs> yes, that, that, that's great to hear. So on that note, we're going to take another break and we'll be right back talking about fire services. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. If you think you've seen online TV before... 
Let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Uh, We're talking with Tony Sabatini, the Chief Fire Prevention Officer here in the city of Guelph. And Tony, at the beginning of your, uh, the first segment, you mentioned the the roles of uh, fire services and you brought up uh, hazmat teams. Can you expand on that? You know, the, the storage of you know, gasoline cans, because I, I've been to the cottage, uh, you know, different friends' cottage, and you see, you know, a dozen, let's say, you know, uh, uh, gasoline cans lined up. You know, how should we be storing, you know, our hazardous materials? What kind of requirements and guidelines can you can you give us on that? Well, absolutely. That I think, that, I think that the, can't be the guidelines, uh, when you're looking at, especially gasoline, and I know of what you speak only because I, I've, I've actually experienced it myself with others. Uh, gasoline itself, a lot of folks like to store gasoline in their, either in their garages and in some cases we've seen them in basements. Here's the problem when you store any kind of volatile liquid like gasoline, kerosene, whatever the case may be. It's one of these flammable type of liquids. If, in fact, there's a, uh, some kind of a ventilation to it, whether there's a pinprick or, if the, or if, the, if the knob isn't turned tightly, what happens is the vapors, being heavier than air, will sink down to the ground. And if there's ever any kind of an ignition source, and it can be just by flicking a light, because sometimes people will flick a light in the dark and you see that little blue flash, which really shouldn't be there, should be corrected. But you see that little blue flash, it is hot enough to ignite those flames. You can have yourself a flash fire, depending on how enclosed you are. It could even be an explosion. So you're absolutely right. So what should people do if, in fact, they have gasoline, and especially up at the cottage or even at home? We would strongly recommend that the storage, first of all, be put in approved type of containers, like those jerry cans that people normally buy. And I think most people utilize these. Verify that they're tightly sealed when they're in the closed position, and we would strongly, strongly, strongly recommend never to place them anywhere within the home, including an attached garage. If you have a separated garage, they'd be fine to be stored there on the ground somewhere. And if you have a shed or some form of an enclosed type of cabinet, whether it be 
be plastic or something that you normally see now that you can buy practically at any warehouse store, if you can place them outside and have them under lock key, those are the best locations. Because if you have them inside, the problem is that you have those vapors, and if they come in connection with an ignition source, then you may have a flash fire or an explosion. So absolutely, having the type of gasoline or any kind of flammable liquid not to be stored. That would include also propane. People have propane uh, barbecues. A lot of folks in the winter, because they generally don't like to barbecue in the winter, propane tanks get brought inside. And that is uh, a a huge risk by doing so. First of all, it's illegal to be storing that type of propane inside uh, in many jurisdictions. Again, that would be something that you would want to store away from the home, anywhere that's attached to the home. And being outside is fine, as long as you lock it somewhere where it can't be uh, accessed by ne'er-do-wells, for example, who may want to cause some kind of a problem. But in a shed or something, that is the strongest recommendation we can put forth to people when they're storing these types of items. Oh, that's good to know. I think I'll be passing that information on to a couple of people I know. <laughs> oh, that's great to hear. <laughs> yes, please, you, please you mentioned, do, sir. <laughs> oh, I will. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned uh, barbecues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know uh, from just walking around barbecues, you know, I don't know about the rest of the world, but here in uh, Guelph quite a bit, there's barbecues everywhere. You know, up against the sides of homes, against fences, you know, in the middle of an open, you know, field, I've seen them, you know, in the backyard. Right. How should people be storing their barbecues? Because those can be dangerous too, right? Because they're hooked up to natural gas or or uh, propane tanks and, you know, uh, other flammable materials. You know, what's your thought on that? Well, yeah, actually, uh, when you're talking about the the type of barbecue, and regardless of the type of barbecue that it is, it can even be a charcoal barbecue or it can be a propane-powered barbecue, or it can be the natural gas-powered barbecue. The recommendation, and in some jurisdictions, they have legal distance requirements, spatial distance requirements. We strongly recommend that you have at least three imperial feet away from any building opening. And in some cases, 10 feet away. But 10 feet away, especially when you have uh, you know, uh, a deck or something, it may not be possible. So we want to make sure that there's a spatial separation, at least from building openings. And when we talk about building openings, we're talking about the windows, we're talking about the doors. Because in the event you have any kind of a problem or you might have a leak or there's a fire that occurs, well, if you're by that door, someone could actually get burned or it can actually blow out one of the windows if, in fact, there's actually a bit of an explosion. These rarely happen because a lot of propane type of barbecues, they're properly sealed and they're properly uh, tested for their use, including natural gas. But yes, there always could be that potentiality that it could have a problem where you may have a fire or even an explosion for that matter. Having said that, three imperial feet, if you can, that's about a meter, a little bit more than a meter, 1.2 meters away from any building opening. And if you can address it, 10 feet away is the best spatial distance you can have for barbecues. So they can be effectively used, and in the event something were to happen, unanticipated, of course, then you have that spatial separation where you can leave, put the call in for help with, via 911 here in North America or uh, the other emergency number elsewhere, and then you can have the fire service come in and deal with the problem. Try not to put the fire out yourself because... A lot of times when you're dealing especially with natural gas and you're dealing especially with propane, it can be very unpredictable. So that's, that's the strongest advisement we can give. And certainly check with your local jurisdictions to see if there are legalities with respect to distance requirements for barbecues, barbecuing appliances. You, may, you mentioned decks. Uh, mm. should, 
barbecues be up against you know railings you know even though they're far away let's say they are 10 feet away from the um, sure. uh, the house you know doors or windows mm-hmm. but they're up against wooden railings should there be space there too or we would strongly recommend that as well now it depends on the type of railing you're talking about these wooden railings and if you have uh you know these metal and they're all mostly if not all metal barbecues and you have them against them the, the type of heat that's generated especially when you're doing uh when you're using it for smoking purposes you're smoking meat products or vegetable products or if you're using it on high heat to to, to cook a steak, for example. The fact is that because they're metal, they conduct heat incredibly well, and they get very hot. If they're up against the wood itself, the wood pyrolyzes, and it's a term which means it sort of breaks down. And as time goes on, the longer you have it on there, it could actually char to a point where you have some smoldering combustion it takes a long process, a long time, but it can happen. So having it up against it, it could cause it to char. First of all, the visit, you know, in terms of aesthetics, it's not a good thing to see. Secondly, yes, you can cause what's called pyrolysis, which breaks down that wood, and eventually it could, in time, if it's constantly being used, of course, the appliance, it could cause a fire on the wood itself, depending how thick the wood is. It could be one. Of, it could be lattice. If it's lattice, you can actually cause a fire quite quickly. So yes, anything that's against it, I would give a spatial separation from there as well. If you could, about a foot, uh, again, an imperial foot, if you can, uh, about half a meter if it's possible, I would keep that spatial separation pretty well the same that you would with a door opening. If you can go three feet, imperial feet, that'd be great, that roughly around 1.2 meters, that would be optimum so that you don't have any of those kinds of concerns. So optimal is kind of on a patio, you know, away from all the fence, away from the house and, you know, kind of in the middle there, you know, but right. unfortunately we don't all have that. <laughs> no, no, but, but the thing is, if you have a, that, it's a bit of space, because what, spa- what the space does between the appliance and anything that's made of a cellulosic fuel like wood, for example, once you have space in there, you have heat dissipation. So chances are you're not going to have that problem where it's going to heat the wood to the point where it pyrolyzes. It takes a long time. It wouldn't happen right away. But if you have a bit of a spatial separation, there's that heat dissipation, so you wouldn't have that type of concern. A lot of folks sometimes have seen, they put up these appliances up against some old brushes and all that, brush, Mm -hmm. other types of boscage, foliage. That's a concern, too, because that stuff can actually ignite quite quickly, especially if they're dry. So if you have a bit of space in between, that little space, even if it's, for example, because I can't regulate exactly what it must be. I can only advise that having an imperial foot or even more so three imperial feet, which is 1.2 meters, that provides enough spatial separation for heat dissipation. And you'll never have the concern of a fire starting against a fence or even some brushes. And considering the heat we're having here in Guelph, that's good advice. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it is. I <laughs> totally agree with that. Yes, Absolutely. So I'd like to, uh, in, our, in our last little, uh, the last bit of time we've got left, talk on uh, pet safety and child safety. Because mm-hmm. on air, airplanes, you always hear, you know, when the, the, the masks come down, put your own on first, then take care of the child. You know, what do you suggest, you know, with pet care and, and uh, you know, young child care, you know, with fire services? You know, what, what, what should we do and plan for them? Well, thanks for the question, Austin. You certainly asked a tough one, and I'm glad you do. <laughs> so here it is, and, uh, and here it is with pets. Um, it is always recommended through any provincial fire marshal office that you are to make sure you plan to get out on your own and that the pets themselves are to be left for firefighters to rescue. We still strongly recommend that. But here is the concern. 
in a lot of cases, pets are part of the family. And a lot of folks mm-hmm. are very reluctant to escape without their pet. So what is the advice for someone like that? Well, yes. if you're able, we still, we still strongly recommend that you rescue yourself and your loved ones, including children, right away. Because I will tell you this, statistics have shown that even children under the age of about seven will react in the same way that a dog may react when it's confronted with this type of traumatic event, which is an excessive smoke, fire, smoke alarm going off in the middle of the night, whatever the case may be. So here it is. You, parents would never leave their children, they will, and, and shouldn't really. They will go in with children who would be confronted with this traumatic event, and what they do is they initially hide. It's just an innate feature to hide away from where the danger is. Pets do the same thing, especially pets that aren't uh, enclosed in, say, a, a gated area or even a cage for the time being. So we're talking about cats and dogs. It could be ferrets, for that matter, depending on the pet you have. Now, what do they do? They hide as well. So it would be very difficult for you to try to get this pet out when they're in that type of situation. They usually go hide in an area that's free and clear of the smoke area. That's why we recommend people to get out so we can do the rescue. But if people are reluctant, then the suggestion would be that if you have a pet, have it near an exit door or have it within your room, which a lot of folks do. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell people to make sure you keep your dog or your cat in your room. But if, in fact, you have a dog or cat and it sleeps nearby you, having it in the room might be good idea because you can quickly scoop up that pet and exit as well if you need to. So it's a very difficult question you pose. It's a very difficult answer for me to put forth for uh, true ardent pet lovers. I'm a pet lover myself. Uh, having me too. said that, we re- yeah, exactly. So I, I would strongly recommend you uh, making sure you escape first and have the fire service assist with that rescue. If that's the case, if you're, if you're very reluctant, then my suggestion is if you can, to have that pet nearby you, whether it be outside of your room or inside of a room, if you can handle it, of course, you don't have any health issues for that, then you can actually do the escape with the pet right away. Because the first thing they're going to do, including children under the age of seven in most cases, if they're not properly trained, and in a lot of cases only because of their instinctive nature, they're going to hide away from the fire from that traumatic event. And in a lot of cases, we found dead children because they have been hiding inside of a closet because that's the only safety net they found at that time. And that's why we strongly, strongly, strongly recommend making sure your smoke alarms are working, they're tested, and you incorporate an escape plan that you practice with your smoke alarm. I'm talking about physical practice to go outside. And if you have a pet with you and you're reluctant to leave, then have the pet escape with you. If you can grab it under your arm or carry the cage if it's a bird, uh, you know, it's a little bit more difficult when you're dealing with uh, marine, uh, you know, like uh, uh, species like fish and that. Uh, in a lot of cases, if they're enclosed in a room, chances are they will be fine depending on the type of fire. But if you have certain pets that you know you will not leave without, if they're with you at the time, especially when you're sleeping, then they, will, they can escape with you. And it's a bit of a concern that I'm bringing forward, and I know that there will be other fire service members that may decline to agree with me on that, because I certainly say that you should rescue yourself first, because that's the truth. But I know people won't. They will be reluctant. So if you have them with you, you're still able to rescue yourself and also escape with your pet, if you can. Well, that's good advice. I, I have dog myself, and I know I could never just run outside and leave him here. You know, I, I right know, in. but he sleeps in the room, um, you know, with me, so I, I can right. I can leverage that. You know, so thank absolutely, Alex, and I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'm in the same boat exactly like you. I have a dog, and the, and the dog sleeps in my room as well. So yeah, I, I can't see a problem with that in terms of the escape. Well. 
Thank you very much for your insight, Tony. Uh, we've reached the end of our show. Um, okay. If you ha- anyone has any information, please feel check out uh, the website, the Guelph.ca website under Fire Services. I, I believe it's called. There's lots yeah. of information there you can check out, and uh, Tony's given us lots of things to think about. And I'd like to thank you very much for all your work and all your colleagues. Uh, you know that keep us safe and protected. Uh, we really appreciate that. Thank you, Alex. It was my utmost pleasure speaking with you and and all your listeners. Great. Thank you very much, everyone. And again, if anyone has any topics they'd like to talk about, please send me an email at info at stone-road.com. To my attention, Alex Fullick, and we'll see if we can get something on the show for you. Thanks, everyone. And you've been listening to Preparing for the Unexpected. Stay prepared, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.